0: Well, I know most of you, but a few of you I see out there that I've never met before. My name's Todd. I'm the lead pastor here at Cornerstone. Good to have you here today. Um, you've come on a Sunday that uh, we're going through the book of Revelation. Um, now, for some people, when they hear the book of Revelation, they're like, oh, wow, it's too bad there's not a football game today. But it doesn't matter anyways, because the Steelers aren't in the Super Bowl. So really, the season's over, if you know what I'm saying. Yeah. Amen, huh? Amen, yeah? Yeah, that's what I'm saying. But... Um, You know, last week it was so interesting, and and this is what we've been trying to do with the book of Revelation, is we wanted to give kind of some hooks for everybody to understand this book, because it can get a little bit confusing, but again, our heart is that we would take this big picture perspective. And so last week we grabbed one specifically, we grabbed this idea of Jesus, and, and if you remember right from last week, those of you that were here is that the most important thing that we have as we struggle through all kinds of the different problems and face all the different things that are going on in life is to maintain this massive image of Jesus. And again, not try to create it. He is massive. Our problem is, is that we tend not to see him in that way. Now, This week, I've been trying to, I don't know how you are with your your kiddos, and, and maybe you can remember those of you uh, that, that maybe don't have kids in the home anymore. But I was like, I'm going to take my kids through this. And we're going to understand these things. And so I sat down with my middle two, and we're talking about the greatness and hugeness of Jesus. And I'm thinking, oh, my gosh, I might have to do an altar call when I'm done with this one. And so I looked at my son. And I go, dude, like, like, what do you think about this, man? And he looks back at me. and goes, you think I could get a lightning bolt in the side of my head? <laughs> and so I'm thinking, oh, Satan has so deceived him. And I'm going to have a moment with my son. So we begin to talk through, like, things that we do and why we do them. And, and, I, and I looked at him, and, you know, because I guess I'm a cynical, sarcastic dad. I go, and not only that, Josiah, but you're not fast enough to get a lightning bolt on the side of your head. <laughs> well, my daughter's sitting there listening to the whole thing. And she says back to me, well, then why did you shave a circle on top of yours? <laughs> <laughs> oh, <laughs> So there's the depth and the richness of my home, just in case you were wondering. <laughs> now, I want to. I do want to get serious here for a second, now that you know that my children belittle me, um, but bears will eat them one day. But I think the thing that, like last week, I didn't want us to miss as we look at this cosmic Jesus is that little statement to him who loves us. I just want to stop for a second. The cosmic king of the universe loves us. Now we quickly sometimes just move past that. Just let that settle for a second. The king of kings, the Lord of lords, the alpha and the omega, the one that was wandering amongst those golden lampstands with the hair of white and the fiery flame eyes and the sword coming out of his mouth and just this imagery he wants us to get. He loves us. Now here's what I think Satan does though. I think Satan takes a lot of these different things and there's nothing more that he likes to do than to manipulate us around these areas. The Hugeness of Jesus will either be manipulated around there or his passionate love for us. That's the other place that I think he tends to really manipulate us. Now, I don't know how your view of Satan is, but let me just tell you this: You're going to learn, as we study the book of Revelation, He is real. Demons are real. And they're operating in this world right now. And what they're seeking to undercut is everything we talked about last night, to, uh, last week, seeking to undermine our vision and the hugeness of Jesus, the, the, the love and the passion that he has towards us. The demonic world is doing everything that he can to work against us in that particular way. And one of my fears as a shepherd here at Cornerstone is, and I've been asking myself, where's Satan working amongst us? because Jesus really is this king that's going amongst these golden lampstands, right, and he's, he's watching how we burn, and we learned that from last week, but there's also a real Satan who's seeking to undermine. Now, now don't get me wrong. Greater is he who's in us than he is in the world. We know that at the very end, and I can't wait for that day when Jesus grabs Satan and throws him into the lake of the fire, and he gains his ultimate victory over sin, over death, over everything. But right now in this world, there is a real Satan moving and operating out there with his demonic realm, seeking to undermine that. And this is what Jesus is doing. He's going in amongst these churches, and he's going... I want these candles. I want these lamps to burn brightly. And he sees them. And last week we might have learned about this idea of him being this cosmic grand Jesus who's passionately, his passionate love towards us never ends. But there's this other side of it that he's going to be prophetic, he's going to warn. He's going to let us know because sometimes Jesus does give us a hug. And again, what I talked about last week, some of you are like me and you need a two by four between the eyes, not a hug. And he's going to come into a few of these churches and again, in his love and his passion for us and say, I have this against you. Now these seven particular churches he's going to talk about, whether we're talking Ephesus, whether we're talking Smyrna or Pergamum, or whether we're talking Sardis or Thyatira, or whether we're talking Philadelphia or Laodicea, these seven churches were real churches, and he was wandering amongst them, moving amongst them, seeking where they're at, and now in in chapters two through three, excuse me, he's going to now write them each letters. Now, here was the thought I had in the back of my mind as I was studying this week. What letter would Jesus write to us? You ever thought that for just a second? What would he say to us? Now I think what is so good about this is these seven churches you're gonna learn are almost symbolic of churches that have existed throughout time. In other words, all throughout times, there, there are Ephesus-type churches and there's Smyrna-type churches, there's Philadelphia-type groups of people, there's even like Laodicea group of people, is that when we study church history, we learn that all, the things that he's gonna speak about to these particular seven churches are symbolic of the way now we're gonna see these churches have existed throughout time. You're You're going to learn this a lot about the book of Revelation. There is much symbolism in this particular book. That means that Jesus isn't only speaking to those particular churches. Now, this is where I want us to get it. The thundering voice that we talked about last week, like many waters, is echoing out to us and saying, I need to talk to you, Cornerstone. I need to talk to you. Now, don't miss this. He's passionate about us. Those of us that know him, he loves us but Jesus is never afraid to correct his church because he wants us to shine bright. Now, if there's one church that I think sticks out more than any other that's like Cornerstone, it's the very first church that we're going to look at. Now, when I say this, let me, just, let me start by so that people don't get the wrong idea. They're going to leave here and go, I don't even think he likes his church. I love this church. I'm passionate about this group of people. I love our history and what God's done over the last almost 25 years. I love what he's doing now in so many different people's lives. But it's kind of this weird tension you have as a pastor because I look around not only in my life but in others and I do see that there are these things that Satan has twisted us on and this is where I think Jesus is going to be speaking to us today and I'm I'm hoping that you're going to listen and here's my fear. I think the people that need to hear what I'm saying today are going to be the most convicted, and they're going to be the ones that are going to leave here going, is it me? And the people that, or did I do it wrongly? People that need to hear it, or the people that hear it won't, and the people that need to hear it, whatever, you know what I'm trying to say here. Gosh. The idea is, is I'm afraid in there, and you get to the very end in verse 7, let he who has ears listen. Because I I think at the core of this church at Ephesus is something so very important for us. Now, the church at Ephesus, we learn, he says in there, he says, I know your works. Now, what does he mean by that? Ephesus was a church that was started by Paul. It was the first church, and you're going to see this, it was probably the first church that was planted that planted all the other six churches. It had all kinds of phenomenal people that went through it. Paul planted it, stayed there for three years, sent his son in the faith, Timothy. He was there for a little while, Priscilla, Aquila, all these great people that we read about in the New Testament, and finally finishing with John, they shepherded this church. So in other words, they had some phenomenal people that oversaw them. They're a church, not only that, that was started out of a riot. In Acts 19, we find out that Paul goes into this particular town, and he starts preaching Jesus, and as he's preaching Jesus, people start to come to repentance. They start to forego all their idols, and it's just this riot that takes place in the middle of nowhere, to the point where they're ready to throw Paul out, kick him out, kill him, do whatever it takes, and who's the guy that's starting all this? In other words, it started in the middle of nowhere, in in an absolute riot, underneath the temple of diana that was this big black hideous statue in which there's priests and priestesses and prostitutes and sex going on all over the place in other words this was a crazy town to start a church a little bit different than see it was the church though that when paul in, in acts it's so interesting 20 it was the last church really he sat down and spoke with the elders he said, night and day, and he had to call it back to him. He goes, night and day, do you remember I pled with you in tears, and I tried to show you that there were going to be wolves that would come in amongst you to seek to, to dissuade you, that somehow Satan would use them to get you off track. And let me tell you something. This group of people heard that, and they did it. In other words, look at this. They did the work. He said, I can look, at. I don't think he's pandering. I know you're a hardworking church. He said you have this patient endurance. It's this Greek word hoopamone. You stood up under everything. You have withstood it. You're a phenomenal church. You've, you, you're ones that, that not only that, that you you can't bear with these people that come in and teach any kind of false doctrine. You test them. You approve them. If they're not a part of the true teaching, you kick them out. You're a great church. And if you find somebody false, and I know this, if I stood in front of you and I preached something untrue from scripture, my email box would be loaded. Trust me, a couple times it has. Couldn't believe how wrong you were. It's a great church. I mean, in a lot of ways, I was sitting there thinking, you know, Christianity today, if it were around then, I think we'd call them church of the year. They won't put up with evil. Not only that, but verse 3, we find out that they, that they would not only did they endure it, but they would do it, he says, for my name's sake. You weren't trying to make a name for yourself. You were truly trying to make a name for me. It was a great church. I mean, just studying to that point, I thought I would, I would go to that church. Hard-working, keep out false teaching, Man, there are groups of people that want to make a name for Jesus. And you would think in the back of your head, what could go wrong? Now, this is where I think verse 4 is so interesting. This I have against you. Now, it would be one thing today if I stood up and I said, Cornerstone, you know, I've got a couple things against you. You'd be like, all right, dude. But this isn't just anybody. We have to go back again to chapter one. This is this great Jesus that I tried to present last week. This one who was walking amongst lampstands. This one with seven stars in his hand. This one that was also as he was examining with eyes of fire and this white woolly hair and a robe that proceeded down from him. This one that spoke like a trumpet and then spoke with the sound of many waters. In other words, if Jesus says, I have something against you, We should shudder. Now again, what is it? We're doing everything right. We're checking all the boxes. If people are evil, we deal with that. What could be wrong with this particular church? And this is what he says. You've abandoned the love you had at first. In other words, you can do all those things, but if there's not a passionate, wholehearted love for me, It doesn't matter. Now, I've used this illustration before. Can you imagine today, you know, my wife, um, I come home from church, and as I walk in, she looks at me, and she goes, man of my dreams, welcome home. I've doled out all our children to other people. Not only that, if you take a big sniff, you'll smell that I have made the perfect meal for you, O oh man of my dreams. <laughs> Come hither, my husband. Sit down on thine couch. Watch TV. Not only that, but I will just sit there and massage your feet while you do this, and then afterwards we'll have a great meal, and who knows what will happen next. And then all of a sudden she finished this way, but I don't love you. It's deflating. See, I think churches can do all the right things, check all the right boxes, and they begin to love not their Savior, but the things that they do. They work hard. They keep out false teaching. They do all the right things. But here's the thing. God doesn't want just that. He wants to be the focal point of our affection. He doesn't want just kind of some of it. He wants everything. See, this is where as I just sit there, let me me ask you this question for just a second before I keep moving. If you were honest with yourself, how is your passion for Jesus? Just be honest with yourself for a second. If you were to sit down and give yourself a gut check, would Jesus say the same thing to you? This I have against you. You're doing all the right things. You're dad of the year, mom of the year. You're going to all these sporting events of things that your kids do. You're hanging out with your friends. You're a part of a local church. You're, you dot, dot, dot. You're checking all the boxes. But deep inside, you know that your passion for Jesus has waned. Is that you? Now, again, I'm fearful that some of you are going to be sitting out there beating yourselves up and there's others of you that are going to go, I don't even care what Todd's saying. But I think this Sunday, there's no better Sunday than any of them as we just examine this. And us as a church, where is your passion for Jesus? Now, the thing that I love is Jesus doesn't just leave us there. He doesn't go, well, stinks to be you. Gosh, you know, love me stinks to be you and he doesn't write us off. This is what he does next. He's gonna to begin to lay out for us now, what are we supposed to do? If we've lost our passion for Jesus, if other things have kind of swayed in and gathered our passions, then what are we supposed to do? And the first thing he tells us is he says, remember therefore from where you've fallen. All this week, as I've been thinking through this as a church, and I've been thinking through this personally, because I, again, I think this is what's happening and what Jesus Christ is doing. He's, he's not only asking it on a personal level, he's asking it of us each individually, is that I would ask the question, do I remember what it was like when I first experienced Jesus? And I don't know how many of you sitting there today remember it. Do you remember the first time you believed the gospel? Now, for some of you who grew up in the church, and it's a little hard, you know, I grew up in the church a little bit, but I still remember the first time that the gospel made sense, and I was sitting there in the student union building, and I was walking six feet off the air, and I couldn't wait to get back to the house I was from because I was gonna tell all of my friends about Jesus because I couldn't believe who he really was. I was just sickly passionate about Jesus. You remember like when you couldn't get enough of God's word? Like, I was reading it all the time, and I know all the other Christians were like, hide from Todd, because he's going to ask us questions. But I would go up, and I'm like, have you ever seen this before? And I'm asking him every single question. I was blown away by everything, and and this is what what Jesus is conjuring. Do you remember that? Do you remember that first love passion? I remember when I couldn't stop talking about it, and everybody that I knew was going to hear about Jesus. I remember showing up to be with all these local believers, and and some of them were so bored out of their gourd to be there. But I, every time the guy preached, he's working through the Book of Romans. I just remember every word that came out of his mouth. I was like, "No way! Shut up! That's phenomenal!" I mean, I just everything was so amazing and true. As I remembered back there, it's weird. To realize that as we work through things, it's kind of like a marriage. You can become so just dulled over time. Can't you? It's that thing where he says, just remember. Dig back in there. Remember what it was like in those truths. And then he says this statement that I think some of us are going to sit here and go, "Ah, it's this word, repent. Now, that word repent, right, we know it means to turn and go the other way, which also means lack of love for Jesus is sin. I used to just think, you know, I'm just going through a dry time. I just feel a little distant from Jesus. But no, what he's telling us is is we are going the wrong way. We need to turn and go the other way because lack of love for Jesus is sin. Now, how do I know that? Well, the first love concept was something that spoke about all throughout the Old Testament, all throughout the New Testament. It's found way back in the book of Deuteronomy when, they said to, when God said to his people, you will love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and strength. I am to be the center of your affections and nothing else. And in fact, my love for you is jealous and I'll do whatever it takes to eliminate anything that gets in the way of my love for you. The Pharisees came along, right? And they asked Jesus this, where they're in in all the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. What's the greatest command? What's the answer? Love the Lord your God with all? We added the word mind in there. In other words, Jesus was saying, with everything. In other words, if we don't love Jesus in that kind of a way, Jesus says, that is insufficient. I really got to catch up with my slides. There we go. Now, you would say, well, where do you get that? Well, in Matthew 10, also you see this in Luke 14, when Jesus would talk with people, he would even say this about following him. Unless you love me, he says, more than your father or your mother, you're not worthy of me. Whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And we look at that and we go, well, no, 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 no. You don't understand who my wife are and my children are and, and my husband is. Let me tell you something. Jesus says, whatever they are, I'm greater. I'm beyond that. Their love for you diminishes compared to my passion and my love for you. In other words, to not love him in this kind of a way, in our growing understanding of him, he says, repent and come the other way. Now, I know within this room for a fact, there are many of you that are playing games, that are going through the motions, that I think Jesus would look at you and say, this I have. Against you. And one of those people is standing in front of you on the stage. Gosh, this ripped me up this week. You know when you, 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 you think you're doing well? And so you kind of go through the motions of everything. You're like, well, I read my Bible, I pray. I mean, my gosh, I'm a holy man. I'm pursuing a Ph.D. I have read through the Bible multiple times. I sit and I counsel people. I walk them through the deep truths of God. I preach. I do all the right things. I'm raising children that are amazing, that have no sin whatsoever. A Couple of you work at Grace Brethren, you know I'm telling a lie. But it's almost like that thing we're just hit upside of the head. God, do you love me? That's the question I have for us today as a church. How many of you entered in here today and thought, oh, I just can't wait to get around God's people and we're going to worship God radically with everything we are. I'm not going to ask for a sign of hands, by the way. I think most of us just kind of go through our day, don't we? We don't even realize it. We just kind of float through everything until all of a sudden we sit there and we're confronted with this reality. Am I passionately pursuing Jesus Christ? So then the question is, okay, so after I repent, what do I do? I love his next statement. He says, now go back and do the works you did at first. Now what does that mean? The first works have this idea of, of, of a rhythm. Um, sometimes churches use the word liturgy to kind of explain it this way. Now, don't, don't think, oh, great, we're going to you know be stand up, sit down, all those different things. Liturgy just means a rhythm. Now, the rhythm that he's talking about is, is we have to, in our mind, if we're going to love something, I have to place my affections on it. I've got to keep that in front of me as much as possible, as much as I'm able to. The way that he talked about it, like in Matthew 6, is he says this statement, where your treasure is, your heart's going to come after in that kind of a way. So in other words, I have to put my treasure out there in front of me by faith, and then his point is, is not that my heart has to be there. Actually, your heart follows behind wherever you choose to put your gaze on your treasure. That's why whenever people come up to me, they say, you know what? I've um, been married for however long, and I don't know how it just happened, but I just fell out of love. No, you didn't. You put your eye somewhere else. Jesus' point in this is I put my eye there and that's why he says in verse 22 the eye is the lamp of the body so if your eye is healthy your whole body will be full of light but if your eye is bad your whole body will be full of darkness if then the light in you is darkness how great is this darkness in other words I have to ongoingly put these things in front of my gaze and his promise is is that as I put Jesus Christ in front of me and I know him and I love him and I passionately follow him he says your heart will follow right behind it your passions will be where they need to be so when he says do these works you did at first he says put them out there lock your eyes on them pursue them know them fall in love with him your heart will always call behind wherever you put your gaze So that's why we spend time in the word. That's why we spend time in prayer. That's why we show up on a Sunday to hear the word of God proclaimed over us. This is why, and again, when I say liturgy or rhythms, these are the things that need to be in our life so that Jesus stays at the forefront of it. If you want for Jesus to be your passion, you've got to keep him in front of you. Now that can look all kinds of different ways. It's being around people. Now, some of you are like, oh, not people. People. And I'm not talking people that tell you what you want to hear, but those people that tell you what you need to hear. Those people that aren't afraid to ask you the questions. How is your passion for Jesus? Do you love Jesus? I've noticed certain things in your life. It's being in the word, spending time with him in it, being blown away by it. When's the last time you picked up your Bible and as you're reading about whatever it is that you're learning about God, you just put your Bible down and went, no way. It's looking at that and gazing at it. It's begging God for it. I feel like so often when I hear people pray, it's about my ailments and how do I make myself more comfortable? And Aunt Agnes's bunions, and we gotta get her off, you know. And again, those aren't bad. But when's the last time you just pled and begged God, God, give me a vision of you? And every time I feel like I get together to pray with people lately, it's like, oh yeah, yeah, those hemorrhoids. (laughs) Ask the Lord for them. No, I'm gonna ask the Lord that your hemorrhoids will drive you to Jesus. Maybe I had a better illustration. (laughs) Now, Ken, don't miss this. This is the cosmic Jesus, but going back to verse 5, he's pleading to us because he's the only one worthy of our affection. It's the Savior crying out to his people, make me the center. Well, what will happen if we don't? The answer comes in the very next verse, in verse 5, when he, talks about this, when he talks about the idea that remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. And he says, if you don't, I'm going to take your lampstand. Now, Cornerstone has been a great church. I love this church. But in studying church history, the one thing I've noticed is there's so many churches that are monuments to pastors in days gone by. It's kind of the letter, letterman's jacket Christianity. I feel like there's some Christians that talk about all the great things that Jesus did back in the 70s when I was in college. All these amazing truths of who God is, and we need to look at each other and say, but where's the excitement for Jesus today? Yeah, but have you seen this letterman's jacket? It says, gee, that's for God. This was 1972. This was 65 This one right here. And they talk about all these different things. And his point is is that, no, it's not about the past. We glory in the past and we remember the past. But we realize that God has grace for us in the future. And he says, if I don't get my focus there, my church will burn bright. And if it doesn't burn bright, then I will just remove the lampstand because I'm not going to have a half-hearted church. That's what he's saying. Now, did he? Well, eventually, the church at Ephesus slowly, from what we understand from church history, started to just die. Even Ephesus as a city is dead but I think it wasn't that. I think what Satan did is it was subtle because see the next church that we find out about when we get to the to this next particular one is that we learn that it's not so much just about this idea of now my affections not being placed towards Christ but when we get to Pergamum what Satan now does is once our affections are displaced from Christ he finds other places for us to put our affections. That's what he's going to talk about. He, he talks about this idea that you all lived in the place where Satan's throne is. Now that could mean all kinds of things. There was a, a throne to Zeus inside of uh, Pergamum that was there. Maybe that was it. There was a a group of people that worshiped uh, uh, snakes, and so they believed you would go into this particular place, snakes would crawl all over you, and you would receive then a blessing. Um, Probably wouldn't do that. Um, But second of all, they talked about just this, this, this next aspect of it, which is just this idea of Caesar worship. In other words, it was just this misplaced worship all over the place. And he says to them, look, you're there. And you didn't deny my faith. I love this. In the days of Antipas, when he was martyred, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells? But look what he says. I have this against you. Some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might as eat food, sacrifice idols, and practice sexual immorality. What does that mean? Well, what did we learn back in Numbers, kind of twenty-two and following, all through up to Numbers twenty-five is Jesus is looking back on that entire event and saying what Balaam began to teach Balak is, is that if now you can put the people's affections towards someone besides God, they will go to it. Now how do I see that happening? The next thing that happens when we displace our affections is they go towards anything. They can go towards houses, they can go towards money, they can go towards vehicles, they can go towards jobs, they can go towards our kids, they can go towards our wives. In other words, Satan being so crafty, gets a church not only to now displace their affections away from Jesus, but to put it in something else. Now, if you're honest with me, you all know in this room, we all have misplaced affections. Example. My wife and I are looking for a house. And as we're looking for houses, you know how you walk into one and it reeks and smells and stuff out all over the place? And one of the houses we were looking at, we came out and we looked up the hill and there were the mansions up on the hill. I put my hand around my wife jokingly and I said, you think we can afford it? Why? Why? Our affections go towards things. Again, houses aren't bad, and if you have a big house, you're not a bad person. You just should allow me to have it. But that's a whole other story. (laughs) Our affections go towards things. And Satan knows especially good things. Again, our families are good. Our marriages are good. But if he can get us focused on those certain things, the craftiness of it is, is now we don't even think about Christ anymore. We become enamored with it. And I, I told you about my wife wanting to glamp, and I've rebuked her of glamping. But it's just with, with camping, right? We can get it caught up in all kinds of things like luxury, and we can get it caught up in things like rest, and all these things. And after a while, the church just becomes this safe, secure Little place where we come to just hear nice little truths about Jesus to make our life just a little bit better. The next thing that happens, he talks about this next particular church, Thyatira. He says, now all of a sudden he talks about Jezebel, but the idea is now we start to even surround ourselves with people that tell us what we want to hear. Now, when you put all these things together, and I hurried through, but let me just, just go with me. Once the church starts going that way, Sardis says eventually the church just dies. It looks good, but it dies. And the last thing is in Laodicea is that Jesus looks at it and just says, you're nauseous, and he says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. See, I think sometimes you have to put what's the final game here. If we don't Ephesians 1 step back and understand that our passion for Jesus is the root of it all, Eventually, this progress will happen not only in churches, but I think individuals, where at the end of the day, we just become nauseous to Jesus. He loves us. He's passionate about us. But his point being, there's no good use. I'm about ready to get to the good news, but just settle here for a second. What do you want? I've been asking myself that. I'm kind of done with half hearted. Anybody else? I'm done with just floating. I think I'm just, I'm at this point now in my walk with Jesus where I see his hugeness and I see his vastness. And even at great cost, I want to see him do great things. But I think the first thing he wants from us is not doing great things for Jesus, whatever that means. I think he's beckoning to us as a group of people saying, I want you. I want your heart. And the greatest news is, is that those that passionately pursue him, he talks about this at the end of Revelation. Didn't I just listen to these. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in paradise. Stop for a second. Is it worth it? Next one. He who has an ear to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. (laughs) Did you know this morning we have a person in our congregation, you might know Mike Steinwender, his mom's about ready to go be with Jesus she's a follower of Jesus, she won't be hurt by the second death. Right now, even though she's gasping for air at this particular moment, she is mocking death because according to 1 Corinthians 15, that though she might pass away, Jesus now is going to usher her in and death is going to be no more for her. Nice little thing there. I will give some of the hidden man and I'll give him a white stone and a new name written on it, a stone that no one knows except the one who receives In other words, you will be special to me. I will give him the morning star. The next one, I will never blot his name from the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. I will grant him the right to sit on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. In other words, what Jesus is trying to say to us is this is worth it. Living this life where we make him the focal point of our affections and out of those affections then serving him in whatever way he's called us to, he says, no matter what you give up in this life or choose to participate in this life, I am greater. So here's the question I have for you. Is that what you want? Is it? Is this what you want? And if it is, Jesus says, put me at the forefront and follow me. This week, it's putting him at the forefront in your time with him. This week, it is crying out to him for a new passionate heart for him. This week, it is putting yourself around people and talking about the greatness of Jesus, even if they start talking about lightning bolts on their head. It is sitting down and remembering this week what it was like to follow Jesus in those first baby steps that you took. It's sitting down and pouring your life into other people and watching as they experience these new truths about Jesus and as they experience them, it ignites you because you remember what it was like when those new truths were part of your life. It's being at work and not just showing up to do a job and collect a paycheck, but being there and looking around and going, God, what do you want me to do in this place that you've called me to work? This grandness of Jesus is now in front of us. And what are you gonna do with it? What I wanna do to finish is I'm gonna show you a a video of a couple. Sometimes God has to... uh, walk us through a difficult time to remind us how incredible he is. So if you can, just watch up on the screen. We're going we're gonna to show a video really quick.
1: In July, we found out that we were pregnant, and it was very unexpected to the both of us. Um, not that there's ever a perfect time to have a baby, and not that you're ever fully spiritually or financially ready to have a baby. But for us, having kids was kind of a distant, far off thought of in the future, and we weren't ready yet.
2: So as we found out that Maddie was pregnant, uh, I was actually going through a six-month background check process for Ventura County Probation Officer. We were kind of connecting the dots in a way, thinking that this was somehow ordained and uh, come to find out towards the end of the background process, for some unknown reason, I was uh, disqualified from that process.
1: So with the news that we were pregnant and the news about Ryan's job, to be honest, I felt a lot of anger and frustration and fear during this time because um, as a self-proclaimed control freak, my plan was crumbling before our eyes. After a couple weeks of um, sharing the news with family and friends and a lot of prayer and a lot of community, we came to terms with our new situation. And I'm so thankful for community um, because we shared the news with our family and there was excitement. This would be the first grandbaby on both sides. And with that excitement came more excitement for us. Um, And at eight weeks, we went to the doctor's office for an ultrasound and we saw the heartbeat. And when you see that little (sighs) baby's heartbeat, as small as it is, Any fear or frustration kind of flies out the window.
2: Just in that week of time, when we saw the heartbeat, Maddie started to show um, some concerning signs, so... we scheduled an appointment to get another ultrasound done and uh, the ultrasound tech spent a lot longer trying to find the heartbeat and ultimately concluded that there was no heartbeat and that this life that we had grown to be so excited about uh, we had lost and that was definitely one of the hardest things we've had to deal with as a couple.
1: When the baby was taken away, it was a rug pulled out from under us and we asked, what was all of this for? Um, And we were in that position where we knew God was good, God is good, but why all of this and how do I press forward and make sense of what just happened? And I don't know if I have a good answer to that yet because we still are pressing forward but with pressing forward needs to be pressing into God more into scripture, into prayer, into um, community into one another as husband and wife and just that that walking by faith that we don't know if we'll see the fruits or the blessings of this trial in this life, but, That faith and that um, testimony to show others our strength through the storm, that's worth more than any time on this earth, or anything that could be given to us on this earth. Because I know He'll bless us abundantly for our um, faithfulness to Him. And I know He'll continue to be faithful to us in whatever the future holds when it comes to children and having a family.
0: You know, Ryan and Matt, difficulty is difficulty, isn't it? But what's so amazing sometimes in our difficulty is our renewed heart for Jesus. Suddenly what becomes important kind of shines. If you're somebody here today that's going through a difficult time, let me just tell you this, I think Jesus is screaming for your affections. He's crying out to you. If things are going well, I think Jesus is crying out for you. He is the treasure in the field. He's the pearl of great price. Our Jesus is worth it. Let me just say that again. You don't even have to say amen at the end of this. Just listen to me. Our Jesus is worth it. So in the name of the Father, who has known each and every one of you before the foundations of the world. And he called you, and he made you his own. In the name of the Son, who in obedience came out of this joy to rescue a humanity for himself and rescued you for giving you your sins. And in the name of the Holy Spirit, who I believe can renew our passion for Jesus each and every day. In the name of the Father, in the name of the Son, and the name of the Holy Spirit, God bless you this week as you passionately pursue the one who is worth it. Amen? All right, God bless you. We'll see you.